From the last lesson on tradecraft, we wrestled with the idea of exploiting opportunities instead of directly attacking threats to enable, allow, leverage, or amplify stabilizing, resilient, capable, and constant networks and network leaders. Constants meaning within consonants or being in consonants with U.S. national interests and goals. Although I use the example of countering violent extremism because I could discuss the tradecraft from end to end openly and thoroughly, the tradecraft and themes from the lesson can exactly or generally be applied to great power competition and all shades of gray of warfare with regional and global powers. It is a tradecraft. It is a toolkit. It is not specific to countering violent extremism. For example, influencing some systems to potentially moderate or at least stem malign influence of Beijing in the Kremlin and Tehran, whether inside those countries or civil society systems of allies that are near or affected by those countries. While some of the case studies this upcoming lesson will be on great power competition, two from Russia, two on China, all the themes and all the non-great power competition specific case studies can be applied to great power competition. And then in lesson eight onwards, we will double down on great power competition as we did for the first half of lesson two, as well as lesson four and five. Lesson two, we talked about disinformation, deceptive memes picked up by Beijing, brought to the forefront by the Kremlin, and flooded back into the U.S. Of course, in lesson four, we talked about political warfare through the eyes of the Global Engagement Center, and lesson five, doing a deep dive in Confucius Institutes. So that was a thought in the last lesson. Now to this upcoming lesson. The way this is taught, the way this lesson is taught used to be, and normally is, doing deep dives on scholarship of ways and means. Looking to Dybul and Rommelt and Gaddis and Friedman and Clausewitz and Jomini for a typical course, we would be remiss if we didn't read multiple books and, and perspectives on strategic studies or doing a three-hour podcast, and I'm not joking or exaggerating here, on centuries of scholarly debates over just the definition of ways versus means. But I found it far more effective and far more efficient time-wise to simply lay out case studies and with these case studies, we can move naturally or more naturally observe and study ways and means of influence. Generally, means are people and movements, and ways are underlined by subtlety and deception, deception being the other side of the influence coin. So I'll provide five overviews of case studies in preparation for the lesson on influence, ways, and means. And then we will discuss further cases in seminar. The first three cases are in this week's readings. The first on how Soviet dissidents ended 70 years of fake news. This is a very brief summary of how dissidents may have played a role in undercutting Soviet power and influence through actual and real glassness or through truth and transparency. I challenge us to ask ourselves how we can apply the lessons of this short article to counter Beijing and the Kremlin and their influence today, especially in a cyber world. Now, this article does not focus on state-sponsored deception and disinformation campaigns that wear the false crown or the false title of glasses. That will be a focus of next semester. The next reading is on the Mongols by Saunders. Briefly discusses how Genghis Khan influenced sects to fight each other to weaken city-states before Mongols even arrived. This is a tradecraft or an approach that arguably some in Beijing and Kremlin use against the United States and some Western European countries today. 
Then we had the Harriet Tubman article. It's a very brief summary of how the Union may have leveraged Tubman's revolution. Now, why would I give what I would argue is the most effective guerrilla warrior in the history of the United States, arguably the history of the world? And I'm not exaggerating. I'll explain why if you ask in seminar. Why am I giving someone such short shrift, a short military non-scholarly article? Well, one, I'm in the throes of building a four-credit course on Harriet Tubman for war colleges right now. As an icon of liberation, a savior of those who suffered generations on one of the greatest crimes against humanity, and someone who understood more about social movements and strategy than any student or professor at NDU, and someone who mastered deception better than any World War II campaign planner. The reason I'm using this one short reading is that even today, the U.S. intelligence community, and there were recently unclass articles on Harriet Tubman at the DIA and CIA uh, government websites, and military praise of Tubman as a warrior, a spy, a medic, reconnaissance expert, and guerrilla warrior, uh, warfare commander, in my opinion, they are missing the overwhelming amount of evidence that suggests Tubman did not fully trust even the North for true liberation of slaves and equality of free people, and was actually using the Union, its guns, and its bases to further a movement that she began over a decade before the kickoff of the Civil War. We talk about constants and resonance, where the government is the protagonist, but it can very much be the case that a person or a civil society movement can leverage a government for their own goals. The fourth case study is from a reading from last week, which we skimmed. I'll let those three pages speak for themselves, but I want to add other quotations attributed to Colonel T.E. Lawrence, who leveraged and enabled existing trends and narratives of Arab, of active Arab revolt movements against the Ottomans to further the cause of the Allies in World War I. There were initially multiple levels of stealth of Lawrence along with Gertrude, Gertrude Bell and others until a Chicago newspaper made Lawrence a celebrity. And then, more recently, finally, Gertrude Bell is given her due respect for arguably playing an even greater, more influential role than T.E. Lawrence himself. So the following is from the hands of Lawrence. The following is advice that can be applied to influence campaigns, I believe, even today. In some cases, we can replace the word Arabs and Arab revolts with other types of constant systems. And I quote, do not try to do too much with your own hands. Better the Arabs do it tolerably than you do it perfectly. It is their war and you are to help them, not to win it for them. Actually, also, under the very odd conditions of Arabia, your practical work will not be as good as perhaps you think it is. And I go on to quote, Ours should be a war of detachment. We were to contain the enemy by the silent threat of a vast unknown desert, not disclosing ourselves till we attacked, and develop a habit of never engaging the enemy. I vowed to make the Arab revolt the engine of its own success. In the deserts of Arabia, an insurgency war was raging Years before I got to France, tribes of Bedouins had united to fight a war that was very different to the ones we fought in the trenches. Using small and mobile units, they challenged the might of an empire, and they were rallied around the idea of a single influential warrior, ideas of freedom and change. In the final case study, I'll provide an overview of an influence campaign that also took place in the First World War, and I once again challenge us to think how these ways and means can be applied today. The year is 1917. Kaiser's Germany was literally starving to death from blockades and extended on multiple fronts. Cornered and desperate, the Kaiser 
was willing to do almost anything to free up the Eastern Front against Russia, a front that was killing off an entire generation of fighting age males. So he allowed the all-too-happy exiled Lenin, along with his exiled Bolshevik friends, to travel by train from Austria to Petrograd, Petrograd, the uh, modern-day St. Petersburg, and then provided cash on a continual basis for Lenin, secretly, to use for Lenin's propaganda and influence in Russia. And even when rivals to Lenin unearthed that Lenin was being paid by capitalists under the Kaiser, this was much later, Lenin uh, executed something that we might call a first and flood strategy. Lenin got ahead of the story and admitted that he not only took money from the Kaiser, but that he welcomed as much money as the Kaiser and anyone else would donate for any reason that might further the greater cause of some sort of global communist utopia. The Kaiser's original intentions were to influence the Tsar of Russia away from intense fighting against the Germans on the Eastern Front. The intent was either to create infighting division in Russia to distract and overextend the Tsar, or to force the Tsar to focus on civil strife, civil war, pulling some or most of his military back to focus on internal security, or to exacerbate divisions and doubts between workers and the ruling class, between enlisted and officers, to lower will to fight, to promote infighting, to promote desertion, or that Lenin actually gains power and pulls the military absolutely out of World War I in return for Germany's earlier support. This overwhelming or this possibility of absolute success was considered in 1917 to be pretty far-fetched and extreme. But Lenin did indeed wrestle power away from dozens of other socialist parties and then did indeed take Russia out of World War I. Of course, this was a little too little, a little too late for the Kaiser. This influence campaign was stealth and deception up until Lenin was outed as receiving money from the Kaiser, with stealth and deception to amplify and enable a movement in, foreign, in a foreign state to weaken that state or remove its state's military from a war had destabilizing secondary and tertiary effects. Germany failed to believe Lenin's international agenda that was published or to assess properly his political acumen and drive. Subsequently, German communists and communists throughout the world were bolstered one of the many excuses that not to use as they rose to power, and then the Soviets became a global superpower. So I ask us not only what this might teach us about the potential destabilizing second-order effects of influence campaigns today, but also to consider the following. If Germany had correctly predicted Lenin's absolute success or extreme success and transnational aspirations, what could Germany have done to dampen second-order effects? Thank you.